Okay, what was I saying? I was getting off on one. Right, okay. Welcome to the Conversation Series. For season two of this podcast, I've invited some wise and winsome guests from across the country to share with us their thoughts on mission and ministry. We talk about what it means for us to understand the Bible for ourselves and how to reach young people with the gospel in a meaningful way. We think about what poverty and evangelism might look like in the wake of COVID-19 and the rising tide of a new normal. Tying together themes from the parables and the prayer course, this four-part series helps us to imagine what it looks like for us to expand the kingdom of God in the community of Leslie. Today, I'm delighted to welcome two guests who share my passion for serving communities and families of all kinds. Sylvia Bakey is a public health practitioner and the leader of the Maximise Edinburgh Project, an initiative to provide long-term, holistic, intensive support for families in poverty. She also shares some of her story and the role that Leslie Baptist has played in her life. Ailey Proudfoot is the Scottish lead of Home for Good, a UK Christian charity that seeks to inspire, enable and empower the local church to support families who foster or adopt. They're here to give us an insight into families in different contexts across the country and what the local church might have to offer today. Welcome to the podcast, Sylvia and Ailey. It's so nice to have you both here. Hello. I would say I'm normally very well prepared for interviews with questions and stuff, but I know between the three of us that we can talk for hours. (laughs) 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 So we'll be absolutely fine. So I always start the podcast by sharing a little bit about how I know the people I'm interviewing, because I only interview people that I know. So Ailey, I've known you the longest of the two. Um, You and I met on, well, I don't know when we officially like first met, but really we met doing the Home for Good tour, which I was on when I came to Leslie Baptist. Yes. Because you had just taken up your role. I'm on the advisory, Scottish advisory board for Home for Good. Mm -hmm. Um, I met you through that. And then when I started the preaching tour, you and I got to travel the country a bit together. We did. did Now, were you, you weren't in Orkney. We went to the Isle of Skye. Yeah. And various places around the central belt. And then you went further afield up to Orkney and way down. Yes, Peoples as well. Yeah. Yeah, fun times. So we got to just travel about and uh, I would do my kind of preaching bit and you would encourage churches to get involved with Home for Good and, and sign up to yeah. cause. So we've got to travel together, which is fun. Now, Sylvia, you and I met very briefly at the Fox, critical Fox, <laughs> well known to our locals. Yep. Um, and then we had a real fun time together when I did your mum's funeral. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I don't normally go trolling for friends at funerals, but this one worked out pretty well. But our church, um, now they might not recognise the name. I'll do all the intros in the introduction, by the way. Um, the name, because you're married, might not ring a bell, but how might the church know you? So my maiden name, um, so I'm Sylvia Smith. There you go. Yeah, so you are Leslie Local. I'm Leslie Local. Grew up there through... Um, the youth outreach that was available and then through the church my teenage days. Yeah, so it's so lovely. I'm sure the church will be delighted that we get to catch <laughs> up on, on what you're doing now and hear a bit more from you. And Ailey, I'm delighted to have you here because we get to talk about the stuff that um, is deeply important to me and to you. 
So I'm delighted to have both of you here. And part of the reason I brought you both on the podcast, you don't know each other, but I did plot at some point to get you both out for coffee because I thought you two probably need to connect your jobs, have a good bit of overlap. Um, mm -hmm. And this is the best I can do at the moment to get you both in a podcast. So the reason I, I brought you both here is because you both work in connection to um, families, and community and all the kind of vital support work that helps families to flourish in their community. And so, Sylvia, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your job and your role at the moment. So at the moment, I'm holding two jobs down because I'm very lucky. Um, I, um, my official post is working in Edinburgh as a public health practitioner. And in that role, I tackle child poverty. And I've been fortunate to be seconded into the Scottish Government and I'm working nationally on child poverty. So you're kind of in with the big boys making, do you kind of make policies or do you put them into action? Where's your part in the process? Um, I support policy being put into action. Okay. Yeah, and trying to interpret what does policy look like on the ground. And Ailey, you are the Home for Good Scottish lead. Yes. Tell us about your ex your expansive staff that work <laughs> well, my job is the Scotland lead and I am the only person that works in Scotland. So I lead myself, which <laughs> my husband would tell you is probably quite a challenging job. Um, yeah, so I lead the work in Scotland, which means I'm all over the place doing all sorts of things uh, for Home for Good. Yeah, and it's, Home for Good is, is really kind of well based down south. The Scottish work has kind of been in development. So what have the last couple of years looked like for you since oh. you yeah, lots of reaching out to churches and individuals, uh, meeting with families who already uh, foster or adopt, um, and trying to connect them with people who are maybe just thinking about it for the first time. A lot of our work is, yes, trying to encourage people to think about fostering and adoption for themselves, but also to wrap around and support those families who currently do it, and to be helping churches understand what their role might be in all of this as well yeah it's such exciting work and and obviously very dear to my heart the church know that mm. um, i'm adopted and when i came to do the vacancy preach for the church it was on the back of the home for good tour oh, yeah. and i got to share my story with the church and share you know how adoption and fostering has been a, a big part of things for me so i'm just delighted that home for good are doing this work here it's so important and it's been a delight to get to help in some small way now, Sylvia, you were recently interviewed on BBC Four talking about a project that you've been rolling out across Edinburgh. Can you tell us some more about that? Yeah, so um, I set up a, po a project in Edinburgh called Maximise, um, and it's a project based in schools in Edinburgh. We're in um, 23 schools in Edinburgh at the moment with the um, potential of expanding across the whole of the city in all schools, and we're in earlier centres as well. Um, we provide um, three core services, which is income maximisation through um, benefits and social security. Um, in, and we look at um, family support as well for families and we provide employability services. So I suppose what we do is we look at getting people the most money that they can, the parents, and make sure they've got the maximum amount of money they're entitled to, as well as then looking at how we move them from the dependency of benefits and independence into work. In the middle of that, because that sounds like a really nice process, is a, is a lot of um, effects and impacts of poverty that we need to work with families and support them in order to move from one to the other. 
Yeah, because we know that poverty isn't really just about the money. Money doesn't fix it. There's usually a kind of multifaceted reason why people are in the situations that they're in. But just to come back to that, because your job is really focused on child poverty, there can be a bit of a debate about what we mean by poverty. Um, Mm -hmm. People maybe have different understandings of what poverty really is. Um, Your report in Maximize says that one in five children in Edinburgh live in poverty. What do we mean by poverty in this country, maybe compared to other parts of the world? And I suppose it's about context, and that's what's really important. Um, So I'm going to use Peter Townsend, which was a guy from Child Poverty Action Group who defined it. And he said, individuals, families and groups in the population can be said to be in poverty when they lack resources to obtain the type of diet, participate in activities and have their living conditions and amenities which are customary or at least widely encouraged and improved in the societies in which they belong. So you can't compare poverty in Scotland to Africa, for example, it's out of context. Yeah, because, you know, we wouldn't say that having, not having an iPad, well, that's not really extreme poverty, is it? But in a situation where schools might say, your homework, your learning, all of this is dependent upon, especially at the moment, um, participating online, there's a there's a real disadvantage if you you don't then have the means um, to join in with that it really puts you at a disadvantage so so poverty is kind of relative to the context um, that you live in yeah and digital exclusion for example in Scotland became massive obviously when we went into the pandemic but actually it was it was relevant before that in order to claim benefits for example you need to be digitally um, able to uh, go through the system and um, you can't actually claim benefits unless you are digitally um, um, sound and you have your own device or that you have access to that so when we went into a pandemic people couldn't go to a library for example to access a, a computer so how did we communicate with these people about their, even their benefits and um, so it's not it's about looking at it from the wider context even ordering food online if you were in isolation how did you get that food if you weren't, you weren't able to leave your house, how did you then get food if you didn't have family around you? And, you know, for, for many of us, we were able to do that online and get a delivery. For a lot of people, they couldn't. Yeah, and something as basic as being able to Google the latest updates on what we're able to do and what we're not able to do, things like that. I mean, we really felt for the folks in our community who were, we kind of say, digitally isolated because um, yeah. we weren't able to connect with the church in the same way. Um, they were just watching songs of praise, but they weren't able to join with their own church. So it's been... Yeah, it's been tough. Ailey, in a similar vein, I have been looking at the stats on the Home for Good website. Um, If you go to homeforgood.org.uk forward slash statistics, you can find where I got these from. But these are some of the statistics around children in care in Scotland. Um, And here, a child who is looked after in Scotland includes all children looked after by a local authority, including some who remain living at home with their parents but under supervision so Scotland is unique in that Um, I know some children who are under supervision orders at home so they have somebody visiting on an almost daily basis to check how things are going there are around 11,000 looked after children in Scotland 11,000 approximately 50% of looked after children are with foster families and 38% are with kinship carers. So that's usually a designated family member who takes over parental rights, usually a grandparent. It's estimated that we need a further 580 foster families in Scotland. And 5% of all looked after children experience three or more placement changes per year. 
So 5% of those kids are moving house, moving family, moving place, moving school three times a year. Of all children who cease to be looked after, only 7% go on to be adopted. And of the children who are adopted, 68% of them are under the age of five. 26% of prisoners are care experienced and 27% of care experienced prisoners experience more than six different placements while in care. Only 12% of school leavers who've been in care for the entirety of their final year have one qualification at level six or above. 12% of school leavers with one qualification or above. It's estimated that 17% of young people leaving care who are eligible for aftercare go on to make a homeless application. 28% of young people leave care without a formal pathway plan for their next steps. And of young people leaving care eligible for aftercare, 38% didn't receive any. I mean, these statistics are somewhat overwhelming, but it just shows that all these placements and changes for young people in care, the outcomes, their achievements, their pathways are just drastically affected and reduced. Uh, and what contributes to that? Yeah, that's a big question. So first of all, why do children end up in care? I'm always really careful that I just don't want to stereotype and say one big reason. Mm -hmm. Poverty has its part to play, um, I would suggest. Um, so lots of these families are suffering with um, addiction problems um, and that then leads to a, a lack of ability to, to be parents to these children. Um, a lot of those addictions do stem from problems associated with poverty. So, so like you mentioned earlier, it's, it's multifaceted mm -hmm. and many of these parents um, who are struggling and we always want to be really sure at Home for Good that we are not judging any parent that is unable to look after their birth children. Um, the vast majority of these people genuinely do want to be able to care well for these children, but there are a number of factors uh, piled together that just mean they're unable to. Um, so whether it is addiction, whether it is poverty, whether it is uh, mental health is another one. Um, all of these factors, social work, um, put them all together and realise that actually that child is going to be better cared for away from the family home and that's a huge decision and not one that any social worker would take lightly um, because we know that the minute that child is removed from their birth family that is trauma that's a traumatic experience so uh, they would want to avoid that at all costs um, and, and so it's a big, big call to say that that child would be better off with a different family for that period of time or permanently. Yeah. The second part of your question about um, outcomes and why they are so poor, well, people are writing PhDs on this. And again, it's not just a simple um, one sentence answer that I could give you. Um, I would come back to that word trauma. So we know that all children that we would see in the care system uh, have experienced trauma because they have had to leave their birth family. Some of those children may have experienced abuse, not all, whatever type of abuse that is. Um, and, and that will be with them for the rest of their lives. Um, we know that a lot of children uh, who are particularly in foster care, they can have multiple moves um, in foster care. That statistic you read earlier um, of that 26% of our prison population in this country are care experienced. And of that, 
20, I think it was 27% of those who have been in care as a child um, had six or more placements. So it's that constant moving. So it's like each time that happens is a trauma. It's possibly a new school, a new peer group, removal from the familiar faces and routines that you had before. And that is going to have an impact um, on, on the long-term outcomes of any young person. Because with each move, you're losing a secure connection. And so for us, we kind of take for granted that, you know, our parents, our friends at school, you maybe had the same friendships through primary school, through secondary yeah. school. So over four or five years as a young person, you're building secure relationships that allow you to learn, to grow, to develop your social skills, to build a kind of secure sense of self. All that stuff, we really underestimate the importance of it. If you're moved every two years or every three years, mm -hmm. your friendships get so far, you've got to start again. When you go to a new place and you've got to explain why you're there and who you are and what your story is and, and, and to lose those secure connections as you go has a massive impact on people's ability to cope in the classroom. Yeah. Um, you think just go in, sit in the classroom, learn your lessons. But if you're someone who's experienced abuse, a classroom can be a really frightening place. Like mm -hmm. kids and teenagers are not, um, they can be quite an intimidating bunch of people. So yeah, there's all kinds of things that are affecting people's development as yeah. they go. And even things like going into school that day. Before I worked for Home for Good, I was I was a high school teacher and it was a guidance teacher that I was. And, and we would have children come in and, and sometimes they wouldn't be sure if they could go home at night because of what had gone on at home that day they hadn't eaten since the day before it had been very turbulent in the house and between them and their social worker and school where am I going tonight but you know so and we were then expecting a child to go into class and try and concentrate and yeah. you know remember a pencil and all those other little things plot lights of you know Hamlet yeah 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 absolutely and then and these children what is going on inside their heads and their hearts was there, there are no place to learn um, with all of that chaos in the background. Now, Sylvia, you're, um, the work that you're doing, the, kind of, the report from Maximize, um, part of their strategy is to help build protective social networks, um, mm -hmm. protective social networks that will enhance family interventions, will make sure that the kind of critical support is given at the right time. Um, can you explain a bit about that? You know, what is a protective social network and how do they help families, um, particularly in these kind of situations? Yeah, I suppose it's um, it's looking at it. You've got a family, you've got parents and kids, and it's about the support around them. Um, we don't live in isolation. We live in community, don't we? And I suppose whether that's your neighbours and knowing that you can turn to your neighbour for a pint of milk or, or if you're having a bad day, you can speak to them or your friends recognizing friendship as part of network but it can also be about what third sector and um, charities are around or churches for example as, as a sense of support and um, you know the best way to be put is in my own testimony um, and I think about um, the, the social network protective network that was around me and through Leslie Baptist and having outreach for the young people is, um, groups like Ducos and Covenanters many people have recognized them um, I had places to go and people that would be there for me and that actually cared for me and looked out for me because actually going home wasn't a pleasant experience at times um, and so they were people I could speak to um, and you know for me particularly as I went into high school friendship was a really difficult thing I didn't have those groups around me and um, and Christine Brown she's heard this story numerous times she opened her home to me every day at lunchtime at school 
and provided a, a warm home and a welcome. And, you know, that was, a, for me, a network, if you like, network for me um, to make sure that, for me, that I actually, I got on okay, that I had someone who liked me. And, and, you know, sometimes that is all it is, is about just having other people around you that look after you, whether that's from a mental health perspective, because we know that mental health is an issue, or whether that is um, from practical help, you know, there's been the amount of humanitarian aid that's going on in, in Britain just now in Scotland in terms of food deliveries and such like that charities and churches, for example, have done. Um, you know, it's, it's the practical, the emotional, the mental. Um, it's making sure that we build resilience into families that, you know, they've got some support around them and making sure that they can stay, stay strong. Yeah, what a testament to, to Christine, who is still <laughs> going about feeding people. She's still doing a good Aww. job putting food in people's bellies. Um, so Christine, be encouraged in the long term, <laughs> you keep going. Um, now, Ailey, part of the ethos of Home for Good is, um, is that we recognise the vital role of the church uh, and the role the church can play in becoming a protective social network for families of all kinds, um, particularly for fostering adoptive families who really need that support as well. So what does it look like for the church to step into that role? How can we be enhancing the support and the resilience of families in our community? Oh, I love this question because, again, there's not just a one-size-fits-all answer to it. Um, but I think I would say welcome and understanding, which sounds like such a simple concept. But for a lot of these families, um, I, suppose, I suppose the church is often thought of in our society as a judgmental place. Christians are judgmental and um, they have very clear views about who's in and who's not in and who's right and who's not right and um, so a lot of these families would would not want to come to church because they would feel judged by church because their lives don't look picture perfect and they're quite chaotic and people will come and go from pictures and um, even as a church it can be quite hard to keep up with um, families that uh, maybe children are in foster care for a while and then they go back to birth family and then they come into foster care again and they go back to birth family. There might be different people coming with um, a child uh, week on week if they're around a church. So um, giving a family understanding, and I suppose at the heart of all this is maybe what that lovely lady Christine demonstrated so well, is just getting to know individuals. Because we can't offer a blanket approach that is going to make every single person feel welcome because um, as, as you mentioned earlier, Amy, some children find school a very frightening place. For other children that have experienced trauma, school is one of the only safe places they know. But we're not going to know these things unless we know the children. And we're not going to know how to welcome these families well until we know the families. So I think what we would always be saying to churches is just be open and be willing for things to look messy uh, compared to what they might usually. Um, be, be willing to be disappointed in that people might not come every single week. Uh, they might not always accept the help that you think they need because the help that they need might look a little bit different to what you've envisaged. So I think I would I would just say to churches, you know, in this kind of overall answer, to be really open, open-minded, open-hearted, um, and try to get alongside people and get to know them, to know how best to serve them. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and one of the great things about Home for Good is that they offer so much training and support mm-hmm. in helping churches to be trauma informed. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, in a church that I worked in, you know, I, I spoke to people and I said, you know, we, we have foster families bringing kids in. We want to welcome them. We want to embrace them. But for a child who's had trauma, this bunch of strangers running up to hug them might give them the fright of their life. They go. So I'm very grateful that Home for Good actually are enabling churches to do that and to do that well. Now, Ailey, I'm aware of time. I know that you have to leave us a little bit sooner. Um, but thank you so much for, for giving us some input on that. Anything that Home for Good has got going on at the moment that we, we want to know about? Yes. So we have adapted everything to be online. So we have courses running on a rolling programme um, our main course is called the Foundations course, and it's for anybody who's thinking about fostering and adopting, or maybe you know somebody who's thinking about it and you want to understand a little bit more about it. Um, we're running all of those on Zoom. It's a six-week course, um, and you can find details of that on our website. We also have our summit. Usually we have a conference in Scotland each year, and you were going to be involved in that, Amy, and we have a summit <laughs> down in Milton Keynes, and obviously these are not happening in person. But the last week of November, we have the summit happening online and content will be released each day. Um, Lots of seminars, lots of great keynote speakers as well. So um, we'd love you to go onto our website and register for that. It's absolutely free. And there's stuff for children as well, if you want to find out about that. Um, And that's a great place for people who currently foster and adopt, people that just want to understand a bit more about it, or if you're thinking about it. The last thing is our children and youth leader training. If you work in churches with young people, with children, not necessarily just those who have been um, involved in the care system, um, that trauma-informed that you were talking about, Amy, we have a couple of um, webinars coming up uh, later in November. Uh, Again, they're completely free and they're just a really good um, overview of what um, a trauma-informed church could do for children. It is exciting stuff. I spoke at the Milton Keynes uh, seminar right before I started my job here. It was like the day before. And uh, uh, it's nice to see they've slummed it this year and gone with Tim Hughes instead. So (laughs) (laughs) hope he has a great time. (laughs) Hayley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a joy. See you both soon. I'll plug home for good in the outros if people want the website and things. We'll we'll make sure that's all in there for you. But have a Thank you. (laughs) Enjoy. Have a good weekend. Bye. Bye. Now, Sylvia, obviously you're working in a kind of secular organisation, but as a Christian who sees and knows the potential of the local church to be part of the work that you're doing, you see the support that we can offer, the role that we can play. The church has so much to offer, but I think sometimes, sometimes we're afraid to intersect with secular work um, or even just to get out into the community because either we think we'll be rejected because we're too religious, Ailey brought that up, that people think, oh, I'm not going near the church, they're too religious, they'll just try and, you know, shove a Bible down my throat, all that kind of stuff. Or we think we would struggle to work in partnership with organisations who maybe don't have the same set of values and principles that we have. Do you think that the people in your work and in the realms of your work recognise the role the church could play? And how best could we offer that support when it's needed? How do we let them know that that, that support is available? Um, I think the church has a, a great role to play and actually I'll, I'll be really honest, I think this is a time for the ch- church to stand up. I think that um, I think we've been passive for a long time, not all churches, I'm not saying that, but I think we've been passive, we've fed ourselves and stroked ourselves very nicely and I think what we've not done is left our buildings 
We've expected the community to come into our buildings and actually the church hasn't gone into the community. And I think there's a time for us to leave our building and to go out and practice what we've been learning and, our, and, and share our relationship with Christ. It's as simple as that. Bottom line, what we have got to offer is who we are and, and who we are in Christ as just individuals. In Edinburgh, one of the things that I was involved in was helping to um, mobilise the churches in the southeast of Edinburgh to get involved with work that was going on around poverty in the southeast of Edinburgh. And that was part of what the churches said, that we'll be rejected. And I, and I said, that's your fear. And actually, if we take the, the Bible at its word, perfect love drives out fear. So it's time to take Christ with us and his perfect love. And actually, we need to... We need to believe that Christ goes before us preparing and that actually, what are they going to reject? Are they, are they, they're not going to reject you offering support and being a person. Um, they may reject you uh, preaching to them, absolutely. But, you know, as people, it's about going out and being yourself. It's about making sure that we're living our faith and not just talking our faith. And, and you know, demonstrate Christ. Demonstrate yeah. how much he loves you because you're still standing and you actually in a world that's traumatized at the moment through a pandemic yeah. that's really struggling mental health is at its height at the moment you know you're in a place where you've actually got some hope to share there's, there's a great quote from the manila manifesto which I, I found the other day and it says that true mission should always be incarnational it necessitates entering humbly into other people's worlds identifying with their social reality their sorrow, their suffering, and their struggles for justice against oppressive powers. This cannot be done without personal sacrifice. And I think sometimes the biggest sacrifice we're making is the risk of rejection. <laughs> and like, who cares? Yeah, and how often was Jesus rejected? So in the Fife Ward, the highest levels of child poverty in low-income families is Buckhaven, Methyl, and Beams Village Ward with 37.3% in poverty. And actually, to be honest, what we would say looking at um, Fife is that the areas that are the highest level of child poverty are located in mid-Fife, and that is Cowdenbeath, Glenrothes, Kirkcaldy, and Leavenmouth. You're sitting right in the heart of the poorest area of Fife. So what are you going to do about it? <laughs> what, what's your actions? What are you going to do about it? Are you yes, going to send Christine Brown. <laughs> are you going to do about it? We're going to sit in the church and expect everybody to come. You know, my memory of Leslie Baptist is we went out. You know, I remember having one of the best services of my entire life was um, in the Primrose pub and we had a service there. We went to where the people were, you know, and we started reaching people in a more proactive way. You know, that was the church service, but, you know, as individuals, challenge ourselves, you know. I also think we need to stop and have a look at our own prejudices, our own biases, because very much, I think, particularly when we talk about poverty, because it can be quite political, and um, we often think, right, my experience is best, therefore. So, you know, you know, when I was younger, my family never claimed benefits. Therefore, you know, they worked all really hard and, you know, that my mum had two jobs and all this kind of stuff. Therefore, if I did this, then, well, why should I hear about other people yeah. who are on benefits and, you know, and, you know, they're getting... Poverty is their choice. Yeah, you know, but and is but do we should we be using our biases to to you know amplify and to cover everybody in that opinion? No, because you know one of the things that's really important is about looking about inequalities. 
And, you know, Ailey talked about that in terms of care experience. She talked about drug abuse and, and whatnot. But, you know, the, big, the greatest uh, folk that are affected by poverty are those who are single parents, mm -hmm. those who have large families. If you're from a BME community, if you are a, a family that has somebody with a disability in the household, um, if you're a parent who's under 25, or if you have a, a child that's under one, and every one of us can relate to that, that when you have small children, they cost a fortune. You know, and, and these are the families from an inequality perspective that are hardest hit. You know, I'm fortunate I sit with a husband who brings in a wage, I bring in a wage. You know, we're very privileged. But actually, if you're a parent and you're working, um, import poverty is one of the greatest issues that we've got in Britain. You know, it's not about benefits necessarily, but it can be about having a job that's a really, really poor wage, that's inflexible and poor conditions. And, you know, it can, the pandemic really, really highlighted zero contracts because they all disappeared off the face of the earth as soon as we went into furlough. One furloughed, they just disappeared and no money was coming in. So it showed you that that, that insecure uh, employment is just not good. People need secure, good quality work. Mm -hmm. so you're one paycheck away from disaster then. Um, and saving for some people isn't an option because when you're you're on a zero hour contract and you've got children to feed and school clothes to buy, your paycheck's gone at the end of every month. Saving's not an option. But then if your company can let you go on a whim, that's you. That's you. Yeah. You know, we have poverty. You mentioned that poverty is one in five children. It's nearly one in three now. We are sitting at one in four and it's heading towards one in three. And it's not looking like it's getting any better sooner. And I hate to mention the B word, but Brexit's coming around the corner too. So, you know, prices for the cost of living is about to go up even further. So the pressure's on, you know. Yeah. And, and so much of what we offer in terms of relief from poverty isn't just the money. It isn't just the food on the table, though that helps. Um, you, almost every addict that I worked with and almost every parent whose children had been taken into care that I worked with, most of whom were also addicts, I would say nine of 10 of them were abused as children. Yeah. Yeah. And of the majority of them that were women, that abuse had such an impact on their mental health that they, they were then taken in by abusive partners mm -hmm. and degraded to such a level that they were shells of human beings with no capacity to engage socially, to work, to parent. Um, they were trying to parent in the face of the things that were going on in the household. Uh, and so that whole cycle, it's not just a case of let's find them a job. Some of them were saying, how do we help them address the trauma that has just obliterated their humanity and obliterated who they are as a person and actually put enough food on the table that we can focus on restoring their dignity and their worth and their value as a human being. Because until we get that back, there's no chance. Yeah. And you talked about the social networks. That's where that's so important. Mm -hmm. And and about um, you know, I listened to your previous podcast. You talked about how in that when the people come into the church, that um, God wants to rewrite their story. And I think the church plays a part in rewriting that story and supporting people to um, understand their worth. You know, that's the one thing about when I became a Christian, I didn't love myself, and, and as a kid, I didn't love myself, and. God really taught me what, how he's seen me, you know, and he taught me that through the families in the church. That was the biggest impact that I had as a kid was the families in the church and how people took care of me. You know, I had Dorothy and Douglas as youth leaders 
They were incredible. They were there, they were available. You know, we turned up at their doorstep at all hours, every day of the week, and but the door was always open and we were never questioned. You know, or being invited to someone's home or being told, you know, do you want to stay for dinner? No, it was the biggest thing for me. And not because you were starving. Your parents had food on the table. We had food on the table. It wasn't very nice food, I have to add. It wasn't a great cook. But, you know, but we had a house that was freezing. You know, frost grew in the inside of our house and our windows, not on the outside. You know, field poverty was massive in our day. Um, But, you know, a lot of warm houses, but warmth was one thing, but it was the warmth of kindness. It was the warmth of generosity. It was the warmth of of, um, love and acceptance. They were what taught me and really changed my life and helped me to realise who I was in Christ and how he seen me. And that's the Leslie Baptist I know that I grew up in that taught me all those really beautiful qualities. And, you know, there's hard-hitting ones as well. You know, when Ellie talked about families coming in and they're not tidy, you know, I wasn't a tidy kid either. I don't mean in the, the literal sense, although I was a bit of a scruff. You know, I mean in the behavioural sense. But families, trauma has an impact on and, Poverty, by the way, is a trauma. When people have been traumatized by something like that, you know, their behavior, it comes out in some way and behavior is one of those ways and they can play out on that. And so when in church, when people play out, you really need to ask in that trauma-informed way and say, what's at the back of that behavior? How could I interact with you in a better way that would allow you to feel safe? You described that because we just need to draw alongside people. But I think, yeah, it's, it's something that you and I just have that sense of living proof that that you are where you are because the church literally and spiritually and socially fed you um, and I'm the same that I was heading to be one of those statistics social work said I was not going to flourish at school because of my background I wasn't going to do well socially because of my background and well they can take a look and see me now <laughs> that's, that's because of the church and because of the people in the church who took me aside and said you know we see some gifting in you you could be um, a leader you could be a worship leader we think you could teach and you could do some preaching and, and people who took me aside and saw that gifting that my background had nothing to do with it they looked at it and said what's God gifted you with where's God called you how do we enable you to live that out and to practice it and do it and that's the only reason I'm here otherwise I wouldn't believe that I was capable of anything but when I went to church I felt capable for me, it's really special. Um, Leslie's always been special and always will be my home church, but it's a special place. And, and there's a bit about picking up some of that again and just walking with it and being confident in those relationships. Yeah, we both certainly have a lot to be thankful for when it comes to those special church relationships. So Sylvia, I'm very glad you're here to encourage the church, to let them know that their their mission and their ministry has been fruitful after all these years. And so as we kind of send you back into the working world, uh, tell us how we can pray for you. What What's going on for you that we can pray for at the moment? Working in a secular world is tough. It is tough. And at times there's very much con- contrasting um, beliefs and principles and policies that I don't always agree with um, from a Christian perspective. Um, so I think, you know, to, to be able to be Christ in your workplace, that would be where I would say to pray for me is that I, that I am that and that people do see that difference. Pray that, that would be a good one. And pray for protection. It's mm-hmm. a really tough world just now. Protection in terms of my work, but protection in terms of my family life as well, because actually the two of them are colliding all over the place. Because I now live in my workplace, obviously we're all working from home. I now work at the moment six days a week they compensate for the amount of work that's going on as child poverty has gone through the roof and the NHS are, are really struggling um, and having to take on extra roles that people had, are, aren't able to do because of COVID, but that I can obviously compensate for. 
Yeah. Well, we're very grateful for the work that you do and we'll be praying for you on Sunday for sure. Oh, thank you. <laughs>